0: PART 40 OF THE CHRONICLES OF CRIME, VOLUME 1, BY CAMDEN PELHAM. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. PART 40 JAMES Matheson, EXECUTED FOR FORGERY This offender was tried on Thursday, the 20th of May, 1779. There perhaps never appeared in any court of justice so ingenious a man in his style as this person his practice for some time past had been to go to the bank and take out a note this he counterfeited passed the copy and after some time returned the original his frequent applications at length exciting suspicions which were increased by his appearance in life and other circumstances he was taken up when brought before justice fielding he was there known to be the person charged with forgeries upon the bank at darlington The particular forgery now charged on him was for making and uttering a note for payment of twenty pounds, with the intent to defraud Mr. Mann, of Coventry, and the Bank of England. The note was produced in court, and the witnesses were brought to prove its having been negotiated by him. This fact being established, the next circumstance in consideration was to prove that the note was absolutely a counterfeit one this his prosecutors were totally unable to do by any testimony they could adduce, so minutely and so dexterously had he feigned all the different marks. The note itself was not only so made as to render it altogether impossible for any human eyes to perceive a difference, but the very hands of the cashier and the entering clerk were also so counterfeited as entirely to preclude a positive discrimination even by those persons themselves the watermark in the paper too namely bank of england which the bankers had considered as an infallible criterion of fair notes a mark which could not be resembled by any possible means was also hit off by this man so as to put it out of the power of the most exact observer to perceive a difference several paper-makers were of opinion that this mark must have been put on in the making of the paper but Matheson declared that he put it on afterwards by a peculiar method known only to himself. The extreme similitude of the fair and false notes had such an effect upon the judge and jury that the prisoner would certainly have been discharged for want of evidence to prove the counterfeit if his own information taken at Fielding's had not been produced against him, which immediately turned the scale, and he was found guilty. He was executed at Tyburn, pursuant to his sentence on july twenty eighth seventeen seventy nine at the place of execution he made a speech which took up some minutes wherein he acknowledged his guilt and hoped for forgiveness from the almighty he also warned others to avoid the crime for which he suffered and forgave his prosecutors the riots of london beginning on the second of june seventeen eighty with the execution of the rioters The history of London from its earliest epoch exhibits the occurrence of no event of a more calamitous nature or more pregnant with mischief than the riots of 1780. A commotion so rapid and so daring in its progress was perhaps never known. The sovereignty of the King and the safety of the property of the subject rested on laws which were unsupported, the magistrates were confessedly intimidated, and all good and loyal citizens were seized with terror and panic which were alone dispelled by the restoration of tranquillity through the instrumentality of the military force. The origin of the riot is ascribed to the passing of an Act of Parliament about two years previously for relieving His Majesty's subjects of the Catholic religion from certain penalties and disabilities imposed upon them during the reign of William Third. A petition to Parliament was framed for its repeal, and a general meeting of a body of people forming the Protestant Association, headed by Lord George Gordon, was held on the twenty-ninth of May, at the Coachmaker's Hall, Noble Street, Aldersgate Street. At this meeting the Noble Lord moved the following resolutions. Whereas no hall in London can contain 40,000 persons. Resolved, THAT THIS ASSOCIATION DO MEET ON FRIDAY NEXT IN ST. GEORGE'S FIELDS AT TEN O'CLOCK IN THE MORNING TO CONSIDER THE MOST PRUDENT AND RESPECTFUL MANNER OF ATTENDING THEIR PETITION, WHICH WILL BE PRESENTED THE SAME DAY TO THE HOUSE OF COMMONS. RESOLVED, FOR THE SAKE OF GOOD ORDER AND REGULARITY, THAT THIS ASSOCIATION, IN COMING TO THE GROUND, DO SEPARATE THEMSELVES INTO FOUR DIVISIONS, Viz. THE LONDON DIVISION, THE Westminster DIVISION, THE Southwark DIVISION, AND THE SCOTCH DIVISION. Resolved that the London Division do take place of the ground towards Southwark, the Westminster Division second, the Southwark Division third, and the Scotch Division upon the left, all wearing blue cockades to distinguish themselves from the Papists, and those who approve of the late Act in favour of Popery. Resolved that the Magistrates of London, Westminster, and Southwark are requested to attend that their presence may overawe and control any riotous or evil-minded persons who may wish to disturb the legal and peaceable deportment of His Majesty's subjects. His Lordship having intimated that he would not present the petition unless twenty thousand persons attended the meeting, and the resolutions having been published and placarded through the streets on the day appointed, a vast concourse of people from all parts of the city and its environs assembled in St. George's Fields. The main body took their route over London Bridge, marching in order, six or eight in a rank, through the city towards Westminster, accompanied by flags, bearing the words, No Popery. At Charing Cross the mob was increased by additional numbers on foot, on horseback, and in various vehicles, so that by the time the different parties met together, all the avenues to both Houses of Parliament were entirely filled with the crowd the rabble now took possession of all the passages leading to the House of Commons, from the outer doors to the very entrance for the members, which latter they twice attempted to force open, and a like attempt was made at the House of Lords, but without success in either instance. In the meantime, Lord George Gordon came into the House of Commons with an unembarrassed countenance and a blue cockade in his hat. After riding in the whirlwind and directing the storm, but finding it gave offence, he took it out and put it in his pocket. Not, however, before Captain Herbert of the Navy, one of the members, threatened to pull it out, while Colonel Murray, another member, declared that if the mob broke into the house, he, looking at Lord George, should instantly be the victim. The petition having been presented, the populace separated into parties, and proceeded to demolish the Catholic chapels in Duke Street, Lincoln's Inn Fields, and Warwick Street, Golden Square, and all the furniture, ornaments, and altars of both chapels were committed to the flames. After various other outrages the prison of Newgate was attacked. They demanded from the keeper, Mr. Ackerman, the release of their confined associates. He refused to comply, yet, dreading the consequence, he went to the sheriffs to know their pleasure. On his return he found his house in flames, and the jail itself was soon in a similar situation the doors and entrances were broken open with crowbars and sledge-hammers, and it is scarcely to be credited with what rapidity this strong prison was destroyed. The public office in Bow Street and Sir John Fielding's house, adjoining, were presently destroyed, and all their furniture and effects, books, papers, etc., committed to the flames. Justice Cox's house in Great Queen Street, Lincoln's Inn Fields, was similarly treated, and the two prisons at Clerkenwell set open and the prisoners liberated. The King's Bench Prison, with some houses adjoining, a tavern, and the new Bridewell, were also set on fire, and almost entirely consumed. The mob now appeared to consider themselves as superior to all authority. They declared their resolution to burn all the remaining public prisons, and demolish the bank, the temple, Gray's Inn, Lincoln's Inn, the Mansion House, the Royal Palaces, and the Arsenal at Woolwich, The attempt upon the bank of England was actually made twice in the course of one day, but both attacks were but feebly conducted, and the rioters easily repulsed, several of them falling by the fire of the military, and many others being severely wounded. To form an adequate idea of the distress of the inhabitants of every part of the city would be impossible. Six-and-thirty fires were to be seen blazing in the metropolis during the night, At length a continued arrival of fresh troops from all parts of the country, within fifty or sixty miles of the metropolis, intimidated the rabble, and soon after the disturbances were quelled. The Royal Exchange, the public buildings, the squares, and the principal streets were all occupied by troops. The shops were closed, while immense volumes of dense smoke were still rising from the ruins of consumed edifices. During the riots, many persons, terrified by the alarming outrages of the mob, fled from London, and took refuge at places at a considerable distance from town. The following account was written by Dr. Johnson to Mrs. Thrale, who had gone into the country for safety, and may not prove uninteresting. The doctor was an eye witness to many of the scenes which he depicts. On Friday, the 2nd of June, the good Protestants met in St. George's Fields, at the summons of Lord George Gordon and, marching to Westminster, insulted the Lords and Commons, who all bore it with great tameness. At night the outrages began by the demolishing the Mass House near Lincoln's Inn. On Monday Mr. Strahan, who had been insulted, spoke to Lord Mansfield, who had been insulted too, of the licentiousness of the populace, and his Lordship treated it as a very slight irregularity. On Tuesday night they pulled down Fielding's House, the public office in Bow Street, and burnt his goods in the street. They had gutted on Monday Sir George Savile's house, but the building was saved. On Tuesday evening, leaving Fielding's ruins, they went to Newgate to demand their companions, who had been seized for demolishing the chapel. The keeper could not release them, but by the mayor's permission, which he went to ask. At his return he found all the prisoners released, and Newgate in a blaze. They then went to Bloomsbury, and fixed upon Lord Mansfield's house, which they partly pulled down, and as for his goods, they totally burnt them. They went to Wood, his lordship's country-seat, but a guard was there before them. They plundered several papists, and burned a mass-house, and some dwelling-houses in Moorfields, the same night. On Wednesday I walked with Dr. Scott to look at Newgate, and found it in ruins, with the fire yet glowing. As I went by, the Protestants were plundering the Sessions house at the Old Bailey. There were not, I believe, a hundred, but they did their work at leisure, in full security, without sentinels, and without trepidation, as men lawfully employed in full day. Such is the cowardice of a commercial place. On Wednesday they broke open the Fleet Prison, the King's Bench, and the Marshalsea Prisons, Wood Street, Compter and Clerkenwell-Bridewell. At night they set fire to the Fleet and the King's Bench, and I know not how many other places, "'and one might see the glare of conflagration fill the sky from many parts. "'The sight was dreadful. Some people were threatened. "'Mr. Strahan advised me to take care of myself. "'Such a time of terror you would have been happy in not seeing. "'The King said in council that the magistrates had not done their duty, "'but that he would do his own, and a proclamation was published, "'directing us to keep our servants within doors, "'as the peace was now to be preserved by force.' The soldiers were sent out to different parts, and the town is now quiet. They are stationed so as to be everywhere within call. There is no longer any body of rioters, and the individuals are hunted to their holes and led to prison. Lord George Gordon was last night sent to the Tower. Mr. John Wilkes was this day in my neighbourhood to seize the publishers of a seditious pamphlet. Several chapels have been destroyed, and several inoffensive papists have been plundered but the high sport was to burn the jails. This was a good rabble trick. The debtors and criminals were set at liberty. But of the criminals, as has always happened, many are already retaken, and two pirates have surrendered themselves, and it is expected they will be pardoned. Government now acts with its proper force, and we are all now again under the protection of the King and the law. I thought it would be agreeable to you to have my testimony to the public security." and that you would sleep more quietly when I told you that you were safe. There has been, indeed, an universal panic from which the King was the first that recovered. Without the concurrence or assistance of his ministers, or even the assistance of the civil magistrates, he put the soldiers in motion, and saved the town from calamities such as a rabble's government must naturally produce. The public has escaped a very heavy calamity, The rioters attempted the bank on Wednesday night, but in no great numbers. Jack Wilkes headed the party that drove them away. It is agreed that if they had seized the bank on Tuesday at the height of the pause, when no resistance had been prepared, they might have carried away whatever they had found. The number of persons killed in this dreadful riot is variously stated. Many persons, strangers to the attempt, were destroyed by the necessarily indiscriminate fire of the soldiers and militia, and although it is impossible to calculate the precise number who lost their lives from the circumstance of many being carried off by their friends it is believed to be about five hundred lord george gordon the leader and instigator of these riots was subsequently tried at the court of king's bench and by some good fortune escaped conviction there was little doubt that he was occasionally subject to aberrations of intellect his death took place some years afterwards in the King's Bench prison. He had been indicted for a libel on Marie Antoinette, the late unfortunate French Queen, and the Count Dademar, one of the Ministers of State, and having been convicted fled from punishment, and was afterwards apprehended in Birmingham, attired in the garb of a Jew with a long beard, etc., where he had undergone circumcision, and had embraced the religion of the unbelievers. He died professing the same faith." Many of the rioters were apprehended, and, having been recognized, were convicted, and suffered death, in most instances, opposite to the places in which the scenes were enacted, in which they were proved to have taken a part. Among them were many women and boys, but there was not one individual of respectability or character. They were all of the lowest class, whose only object was plunder. Among the rioters, to sum up the account of their infamy and wretchedness, was Jack Ketch himself. This miscreant, whose real name was Edward Dennis, was convicted of pulling down the house of Mr. Boggis, of new Turnstile. The keeper of Tuttlefield's Bridewell would not suffer Jack Ketch to go among other prisoners, lest they should tear him to pieces. In order that he might hang up his brother rioters, he was granted a pardon. The following is an extract from the King's speech to both Houses of Parliament, the 18th of June, soon after the riots were ended. My lords and gentlemen, the outrages committed by bands of lawless and desperate men in various parts of this metropolis broke forth with such violence into acts of felony and treason had so far overborne all civil authority, and threatened directly the immediate subversion of all legal power, the destruction of all property, and the confusion of every order of the State that I found myself obliged by every tie of duty and affection to my people, to suppress in every part those rebellious insurrections, and to provide for the public safety by the most effectual and immediate application of the force entrusted to me by Parliament. I have directed copies of the proclamations issued upon that occasion to be laid before you. Proper orders have been given for bringing the authors and abettors of these insurrections, and the perpetrators of such criminal acts, to speedy trial and to such condign punishment as the laws of their country prescribe and the vindication of public justice demands though i trust it is not necessary yet i think it right at this time to renew to you my solemn assurances that i have no other object but to make the laws of the realm and the principles of our excellent constitution in church and state the rule and measure of my conduct and that I shall ever consider it as my first duty of my station, and the chief glory of my reign, to maintain and preserve the established religion of my kingdoms, and as far as in me lies, to secure and to perpetuate the rights and liberties of my people. Abraham Durnford and William Newton Executed for Robbery in the case of these men, we present a species of robbery different in the plan of its commission from every one yet described. It was proved on their trial at the Old Bailey that they hired an empty house, number 21, Water Lane, Fleet Street, and having a bill of exchange lying at the bank of Smith, Wright and Gray, they directed it for payment at this house. They made preparation for cleaning in order, as they pretended, to furnish it with dispatch, but the landlord, not liking this extraordinary haste, or his new tenants, desired Mrs. Boucher, the mistress of a public-house opposite, to have an eye on their proceedings. Accordingly, on the day the bill came due, being 5th of August, 1780, she observed the new tenants, Durnford and Newton, then prisoners at the bar, enter the house, and open the parlour windows. Soon after, she saw a third man knock at the door, which was open, and he entered, Watching the event, she heard an uncommon noise, and stepping over the way to listen, she heard the cry of murder, as from a hoarse, faint voice, succeeded by a kind of groaning, which very much alarmed her, and looking through the keyhole, she saw two men dragging a third down the cellar stairs, on which she cried out loudly, "'They're murdering a man!' She knocked hard at the door, and begging the people in the street to break it open, but none would interfere." Being enraged at their not assisting her, she burst open the window, and was entering the house, when Newton jumped out of the one pair of stairs window, and was running off, but on the cry of stop thief he was instantly taken. Mrs. Boucher seized the other by the throat herself, and dragged him to her own house. The house was then immediately searched, and in a back cellar was found a man, bound and nearly choked to prevent his calling out. He proved to be a collecting clerk for Smith Wright and Gray, named James Watts. They had robbed him of his pocket-book, and would have murdered him, had not the woman saved his life. Mr. Watts, a young Quaker, aged eighteen, the party robbed and alluded to, would not, according to the doctrines of the particular sect to which he belonged, be sworn, which is required by the law in all cases, so that their conviction rested chiefly on the evidence of Mrs. Butcher, but not a shadow of doubt existed of their guilt, and they were convicted and executed on 22nd of November 1780. The story of Mr. Watts was that, on his knocking at the door, he was admitted immediately, and having entered the house, he was collared and seized by two men, whom he afterwards knew to be the prisoners, who attempted to gag him, and forced him down the stairs. Fearing that their intention was to murder him, he succeeded in getting from them by an extraordinary effort, and ran to the street door, but finding it locked, he was unable to offer any further opposition to their violence. His screams providentially alarmed Mrs. Boucher, but not until his book, containing upwards of four thousand pounds, had been taken from him. It is rather singular that Mr. Watts was himself convicted of robbing his employers in the year 1781, and subjected to two years' imprisonment. End of part forty.